It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are all about lying. Now, there are tons of reasons why people tell lies. You know, to save face, to impress people, to prevent conflict, to get out of work, to get out of trouble. I mean, I definitely lied about who ate the last of the ice cream on more than one occasion when I was a kid. Sorry, mom. Now, I tell most of my lies to get out of awkward situations, like when my high school friend who I hadn't spoken to in five years asked me to be a bridesmaid at their wedding. It was weird, and I didn't know how to say no without hurting her feelings. And sure, honesty is usually the best policy, but experts have found that lies can actually be beneficial when they're not selfish. According to research, pro-social lies can actually help build trust. Research has also found that people who tell altruistic lies are perceived to be more moral, more benevolent, and more honest, even when they lie. So in the case of my awkward bridesmaid invitation, I totally did the right thing by lying. And in the case of our storytellers, I think the argument can be made that they lied for all the right reasons. Anyway, Our first story is from comedian Gabe Malika. It was recorded at the QED in Astoria, Queens, at our inaugural all-comedy collider in December last year. The theme that night was the best medicine. Uh, My name is Gabe, and when I was 22 years old, uh, I got a I got a job at a summer camp for children with chronic and life-threatening illnesses. Uh, it was uh, uh, it was founded by Paul Newman. Familiar with him? Yeah, the inventor of salad dressing. Yeah, he's a good good dude. He's in a couple movies, right? Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, Cars Three, all the classics. He's in the good ones. And I get this job and I had never experienced, like I didn't know anything about diseases or children, uh, but a buddy recommended me and I got the job and I was very excited to have the job. And all the counselors at camp keep telling me like, oh, you're gonna have a camp moment. You know, you're gonna have, you're gonna have a moment with the, with the kids where you feel like you belong. And I had one session two, day one, two, two boys enter my life. Uh, their names are Austin and Jake. And Austin and Jake have what's known as Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a muscle wasting disease. Uh, First they walk, then they use a walker, then they use a wheelchair, then they use a power wheelchair. By the time I meet Austin and Jake, they're 15 years old and they're best friends. One's One's from Boston and one's from Philadelphia. And I meet these two boys and they zoom up to me and I know I like them right away because Austin uh, has a diamond earring and the joystick on his wheelchair is a skull. <laughs> 
So I'm like, I meet these boys and I'm like, hi boys, it's nice to meet you. I'm your new camp counselor. And the thing about Austin and Jake is uh, they're kind of like a classic comedy duo because Austin is little and does all the talking and Jake is big and doesn't say anything. <laughs> and so I'm like, hi boys, I'm your new camp counselor. And Austin looks at me and he shakes his head and he goes, you're my new camp counselor? Well, I guess it's time for you to wipe my ass. <laughs> now, I've never wiped an ass before, but I, I went through the training, and so I'm like, okay, it's time to wipe these boys' asses. So we come uh, up to the cabin, and I pick up, uh, I have to do all the steps in my head, so I'm like, I'm gonna take off Austin's seatbelt, I'm gonna pick him up with my legs, not my back, I'm gonna safely transfer him to the toilet area, I'm gonna take his pants, I'm gonna put him down by his ankles, I'm gonna safely put him on the toilet, I'm gonna close the door, and I'm gonna have a conversation with Jake. He's not really saying anything to me, because he doesn't really talk a lot, so he's giving me one more answers, but Austin's pooping, I've safely got him on there, great. I go back in there, he's done pooping, I pick him up, oh wait, no, he has to wipe, I wipe him with a regular toilet paper, that doesn't work, I have to use the special wipes, I put those in the special bag, put those in the special trash can, take the regular toilet paper, wipe his butt, throw that in there, flush, pick him up with my legs, not my back, pull up his pants, put on his belt, put him back into the wheelchair, put on his seatbelt, and at this point I'm completely exhausted. And Austin looks at me with such disdain, and he says, you idiot, I'm ambulatory. I can wipe my own ass. And Jake, who doesn't say anything, goes, I can't believe it fucking worked. And so I love Austin and Jake a lot, and I'll do whatever they say. And I realized uh, three days in, these are my favorite people in the world, Austin and Jake. And one of the great things about summer camp is that we, uh, every, every week, every session, we take the kids to the Six Flags Great Escape in Lake George, which is one of the worst places on earth. <laughs> but the kids love it, and they get to ride rides and be outside and cause some mischief. And so I'm like, great, we take them there, and I'm really excited to be paired with Austin and Jake in the afternoon. It's a 100-degree day. We've just eaten... Uh, nothing but PB&J and no water. Uh, and I go up to the boys, I'm like, oh boys, like you wanna ride roller coasters, right? And they're like, absolutely not. We do not wanna ride roller coasters. So I'm like, okay, like what do you want to do? And Jake and Austin are like, we think it would be pretty fun if we tried to get free stuff from some of the Six Flags employees because they'll feel bad for us because we're in wheelchairs. <laughs> and like, you're not supposed to enable that type of behavior. <laughs> You're supposed to be like, that's wrong. No, you shouldn't manipulate people. But they're like, wouldn't it be so funny if they felt bad for us because they're in wheelchairs? That means they're stupid because we're just like everybody else. If they judge us for that, like that's their fault. And so I'm like, okay, like when you put it that way, like it's kind of a fun idea. <laughs> now here's the thing about camp. There's kind of like unwritten rules for the counselors. Uh, the two unwritten rules are, one, if you make a promise to a kid, you have to follow up on that promise because the kids are sick. Some of them are really sick. And you don't want to be promising things you can't deliver. That's a real red flag no-no. You can't make promises you can't keep. And the second unwritten rule at summer camp for the counselors is if you can make it happen, you have to try. One time we had a kid who wanted to see a unicorn. We took out a horse from the barn in the middle of the night. We put a little horn on him, rode the, kid, rode the horse by the kid's window at night. The kid saw a unicorn, stuff like that. You go above and beyond because the kids, they only get five days to be at summer camp. It's very sacred. And so the boys, they don't want to ride rides. They just want to trick people into giving them free stuff on this 100-degree day. And so a couple of the counselors and I are like, okay, like, let's do it. And so we start getting uh, water, uh, ice water from the concession stands and going over to the guys who run the games. And we get the kids to wheel over and be like, hey, it's a really hot day. Would you like some water? And the people running the games are like, yeah, that's kind of nice. And they're like, can we get a prize? And they're like, no, no, we're not really supposed to do that. So we keep doing this to every game. 
And eventually we go to one of the concession stands and the boys are like, hey, uh, I'd love to, uh, to get a free snack, you know, because I'm in a wheelchair. <laughs> and, and one this like teenage kid is like, do you want nachos? And they're like, yeah, we want nachos, hell yeah. And so they're just like eating nachos, like that guy's an idiot, it's just because we're in wheelchairs, you know? Like they're trying to manipulate him in a way that like it feels pretty harmless and fun. Uh, and then Austin goes, uh, he has to use the bathroom with some other counselors. And so it's just uh, Jake and I, and we walk up to uh, this young kid, and we're like, uh, we're like, hey man, uh, you want to talk to Jake? And Jake's like, I'd love that stuffed animal. And the guy goes, all right, nobody's looking. And he hands Jake a stuffed animal, which is a pickle with a mustache. And a, and a Western cap, and Jake is like, hell yeah, I got Steve's pickle. <laughs> and he's really excited about it. But Austin, who's kind of, it was his idea to do the prank, comes out from the bathroom and sees Jake with a prize, and he kind of gets jealous. He's like 14, 15 years old, and he's like, oh, like, that was my idea to manipulate the people to get free prizes, and now Jake's getting all the free prizes, so I want a free prize. So me and the counselors were like, okay, we got to figure out a way for Austin to get some free prizes. So we keep going uh, up to all these different uh, people to try to get free prizes, and it's not working. And so the counselors were like, we got to go above and beyond. We start spending our own money to try to play the games. We're doing the slack line, which we all can't do. Uh, you know, all those games are a scam, and we can't do them, and now there's pressure right, because this thing means more to me than anything else in the entire world, and I'm 22 years old, and I'm very romantic, and I'm like, I gotta get this kid a toy. And eventually, uh, Austin decides, he's like, no, 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 I want that toy, which is a, it's a gremlin doll from the movie Gremlins. <laughs> this movie theme park's like 20 years behind. <laughs> and he's like, I want this gremlin. And so Austin's away with another counselor, and I walk up to the guy, and the guy's wearing a red shirt, he's not wearing a green shirt, which means like he's an administrator, he makes like $9 an hour instead of eight. And I'm like, hey man, like that's my friend Austin over there. We'd love to be able to get a gremlin for him. You see Austin sitting over there? And the guy's like, uh, yeah, I see him, but there's nothing I can do. And so I'm like, hey man, like how about a couple bucks? Can I give you a couple bucks to give Austin a free prize? And the guy goes, yeah, it's gonna cost you, I don't know, 50 bucks. And so it occurs to me that I'm talking to the devil. <laughs> like the worst person who's ever, because he's not gonna like spend that money on like, something wholesome, you know, like he's gonna buy weed or something idiotic. And I, I just like give him the money because I want Austin to feel like his trick worked. I want Austin to be proud of himself because it's pretty clever for a 15 year old. And I know it's gonna work now. And so I run up to Austin, I go, Austin, I bet if you go over to that guy and you tell him, hey man, I'm having a Six Flags day, I guarantee you, I promise that he's gonna give you that stuff, Gremlin, because I'm sure. And Austin goes, you sure? I say, yeah, man, tell him you're having a Six Flags day. So Austin zooms over to the guy in the red shirt, and he says, hey, man, I'm having a Six Flags day. And the guy goes, sweet. And Austin's like, what? And he zooms around, and he zooms back over to me, and he's pissed. He's like, you lied to me, you promised, you said I was going to get a gremlin if I told him I had a Six Flags day. And I'm like, first of all, I'm pissed at that guy, but I'm like, I feel bad that I've hurt Austin's feelings, that I made him feel less than. And so I'm, I tell another counselor, I go, you take care of Austin. I run over to the red-shirted guy. I'm like, dude, that's what the money was for. Like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. Like, whatever. So I'm like, give him the toy. So I go back to Austin. And Austin, Austin is like really upset. I think it's because it's 100 degrees and he's had no water and only peanut butter and jelly. But he's like really pissed. And he's like, you're a liar. I'm never going to trust you again. I'm never listening to you anymore. And so I'm like, Austin, you, you gotta try again. I know that that sounds weird, but you gotta, you gotta work up the courage and ask again. And Austin, 
the thing about these boys is sometimes they use foul language and I had to beat that out of them a little bit. You know, you can't swear. Um, they used to, this was a couple years ago, they used to call stuff gay. And I'd be like, boys, you can't call stuff gay. It's just like, it hurts a whole group of people. You can't say gay. And so I'm trying to train them not to say that. And so Austin goes, I don't want to hurt a whole group of people. I only want to hurt you. <laughs> and so I was like, well, that's th very thoughtful. Uh, when you think that, when you think something is lame, because I know you don't feel that way about gay people, when you, when you feel like something is lame, I want you to just say, oh, that is so Gabe. And the boy's like, okay, we'll just call bad things Gabe, because my name is Gabe, that stuff is Gabe. So I go to Austin, I go, Austin, you gotta run over there and try again. And as I'm saying this, it occurs to me all the times in my life where I got to try again, I had the privilege of trying again, failing at something and trying again, moving to a new city, failing, trying again, telling somebody I love them, failing, trying again. And it's, all this is running through my head and it's occurring to me that like Austin might not get all those same chances because of his medical condition, but today he gets a chance to fail and try again. So I'm trying to convince him, I'm trying to convince him. And finally I go, Austin, just go up to the guy and say, hey man, I'm having a seven flags day. And Austin looks at me and he goes, I don't want to say that. That's so Gabe. <laughs> and I start sobbing. <laughs> I think because I've had no water and only peanut butter and jelly. And Austin doesn't want to watch me cry, so he zooms away to the guy. And the reason I'm sobbing is I'm thinking of all the things that Austin won't get to do, probably, in his life. But today he gets to try a second time. And I'm sobbing uncontrollably in public. People are staring. And Austin zooms back and goes, Gabe's crying like a little bitch. <laughs> but he's holding a Gremlins doll. And for years, for years, I kind of thought of this as like a profound moment in my life where I got to help Austin try again at his little evil plan. But the beautiful thing about knowing these boys for a long time is that Austin and Jake grew up and they accomplished way more than I thought they might. Uh, Austin spoke at the FDA hearings to raise money for Duchenne muscular dystrophy research. Jake got on the local news for advocating for himself when his school district discriminated against him for being in a wheelchair on field day. These boys are incredible. And it occurred to me at a certain point a couple years ago when I was thinking about what these boys have done that like, that day, I kind of just like saw them for their disability in the same way that the people at the park did. And I don't want to do that anymore. It's so Gabe. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was Gabe Malika. Gabe is a comedian and writer living in Astoria, Queens. He's performed his critically acclaimed Hour Solo, a show about friendship at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the Winnipeg Fringe Festival, Manhattan's prestigious 59 East, 59th Street Theater, and cities across the globe. His solo show's third extension is starting March 23rd. He has also appeared on the Moth Radio Hour on NPR, BBC Radio 4, and wrote for the 2020 and 2019 New York Video Games Awards with the writers from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. He performs nightly in New York City. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. This month, we still have shows coming up in New York and Seattle, and starting next month, you can find us at such exotic locales as Boise, Idaho, and Sacramento, California, as well as our usual local haunts like St. Louis, and New York, and D.C. Visit storycollider.org shows for more details and to get your tickets. 
If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. You should also totally follow us on social media. We're at Story Collider, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. And if you want, check out storycollider.org store for our Story Collider merch. We have hoodies, tote bags, t-shirts, and more. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story is from Colette Mix. It was recorded at the Factory Theatre in Toronto in January 2023. The theme that night was Focus. My story starts where I am in Montreal, and I lived, I grew up in a beautiful little uh, townhouse, Victorian townhouse, that my mother and father had purchased. They had both emigrated from Ireland and raised four daughters. I was the youngest of the four daughters. And I like to say if my mom and dad were um, a team, an Olympic team, that their four daughters would be the gold medals that they wore. They were so proud of us. And I was the youngest. I, uh, at this point, when the story starts, I was trying to make it in Toronto as an actor. And my dad had just retired. Now, my dad was the breadwinner in the family. Came from the west coast of Ireland, strong, strapping Irishman, good looking, uh, looked a little bit like George Clooney, and, uh, but better looking. <laughs> He's my dad. And my mom had the spirit of a Betty White, but with dark, dark brown hair. And together, it was them against the world. So my dad worked in construction. His first job in Canada as a uh, construction manager was up in the Arctic. And his last job was in the desert in Kuwait. And he worked the span of his career. He worked very hard. He supported us. He gave us a great life. And he finally was retiring. And uh, he got sick. And my mom would call me in Toronto. And she'd say, there's something wrong with your father. He's, uh, he's got a hernia or something. So I'm bringing him to the doctor. So I would get these phone calls. And then finally, my mom said, you have to come. I need your support. So when I arrive, I go up to my favorite little perch in the house. So I just want to describe this for you. You walk up the steps to the front door, you go in the front door to the porch, and then you go up these steep stairs that curve around to go to the second floor of the house. And there was this wedge stair where you curved, and I would like to sit there. As a little girl, I would sit there and be invisible, and I'd watch my three older sisters come in the house after school. And I was sitting on this perch, waiting for mom and dad to get back from the Montreal General Hospital. And uh, it was taking longer than uh, they had said. So I was waiting a long time. And something was different. Because when I looked down, there was a, a mirror 
um, in the in the front hallway, and you could see the the kitchen being reflected, and the lights were shining through the windows, and I I had this weird, eerie feeling, and then I looked at the front door, and my mom was there, and my dad was behind her, standing looking up at the the sky. And my mom was very serious, reaching in her purse, looking for the keys. Her, her, her lips were pursed, and she was completely silent. Now, this was not characteristic. My mom was the boisterous one. My dad was the strong, silent type. And dad opened the front door, not mom. But this time, mom came in. Dad came in behind her. He looked up. He knew I was there. He said, ice cream? And he went into the kitchen to get some ice cream, Rocky Road, our favorite. And my mom looked and she said, come, come. And I raced down the stairs and I said, what is it, mom? And she put her hands on my shoulder and she said, sweetheart, it's not good. The doctor told us, both of us, he was sitting right beside me. Your father was right there. And the doctor said, three months. He's got three months to live. And then she said, but it flew right over your father's head. Sure, I don't think he heard it. And when she said that, all of a sudden, I was plunged down into this dark lake. I, I, I didn't know what I was feeling three months. It was like I was underwater, and I could hear Mum's voice, and all I heard were like these bubbles of sounds of tree, denial, horse. And I was like, horse? And I said, what? what's going on? And my mom was cupping my face with her cold hands. And she said, focus, sweetheart, focus. Are you listening to me? And I said, what, what is going on, mom? Three months. She goes, it's stage four cancer. I said, how many stages are there? She said, four. There's only four. Now listen, sweetheart, this is what we're going to do. And then my mom started to hatch a plan. Now you have to understand something about my family. Our love language was telling lies, and hatching cockamamie plans so that we wouldn't upset the other members of the family. For example, my mother hatched a plan uh, when she decided to help me by defrosting my freezer in my apartment in Toronto with a carving knife. She bludgeoned it, punctured a valve, destroyed the fridge, then covered it up with a paper bandage and scotch tape and told me to tell the super that I just found it like that. And she said, because you won't get a free fridge otherwise. She's the woman who, when my ex-boyfriend called me a year after he had proposed to me and I said no, he called to tell me he found someone else he was getting married to. My mother, of course, was listening in. And she wrote out, word for word, the script of what I should say. Tom, I'm so happy for you and her. And she said, because we won't give him the satisfaction that he broke your heart. So now my mom is hatching another plan, and she says, if your father thinks he's as healthy as a horse, well then, by Jesus, he's as healthy as a horse. So what we're going to do is, we're not going to tell him he might be dead in three months. God help us. Do you promise me, Colette? You won't tell him. <sighs> All right, mom. I promise. So for the next month, I put on my best acting outfit. And dad seemed to be in the like, sweetest denial I'd ever experienced in my life. He said, sweetheart, let's go to Steinberg's. Let's buy some 
bottled water. I hear that's very healthy. Let's get some natural food, organic ice cream, why not? And we bought all this healthy food, and a friend of mine from an acting group, the Monday Night Group, had given me all these DVDs of old westerns, and I said, Trevor gave me these DVDs, Dad. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Do you want to watch that? And we would sit down and watch my dad's favorite movie. My dad loved Clint Eastwood. And we would watch, and I'd be smiling and eating ice cream with Dad, we had those old like lazy boys where you'd lean back and put your legs up and sometimes I'd hold my dad's hand and I was always exercising my facial muscles, smiling all the time and, and then dad would get tired and he would fall asleep and then I would drop my face and I'd look at him. I go, I don't think I can do this. I mean, he might be dead in three months. My God, there's a civil war and the good, the bad and the ugly. There's a cancer waging war inside his body. Like... I should talk to him about this. But then dad would wake up and then be right back having more ice cream and we'd just keep moving forward. Dad kept going to the hospital, more pills. I wanted to be in charge of that. So I got a notebook. I wrote down when he had to take his pills, how many, when. I bought these little pill containers. And then in the front bedroom, we had a special bureau where I organized everything and dad was in bed behind me and I was organizing everything and he started laughing. And I'm not looking at him. I'm hearing him laughing. Oh, what's so funny, Dad? He goes, Jesus Christ, you'd think if I didn't take all those millions of pills that I might be dead. And I'm like, eh, yeah, you think? I think you would be, but I can't say that. I, I, and I wanted to just say, you know, let's talk about life. Let, let's talk about all these things. I'm an actor. I want to I live in the truth. I want to talk about these things. But I had promised my mom that I wouldn't. So we just keep moving forward, and Dad starts to not be able to hold down his food. He's, he's getting more and more sick. He gets a cane. I'm, I'm watching him come up the front stairs very slowly. He's losing his hair. His clothes are loose on him. And we have to eventually bring him to the hospital. We can't care for him anymore. And he has to go on dialysis. His kidneys start to fail. And it's getting really, really hard to keep up the front. Uh, one time I was in the hospital room with dad. They had given him all these medicines and they said, if he acts bizarre, he's on an antipsychotic, just let us know. And I was on it. And dad looked at me and he said, do you see them? I said, yes, I do. Yeah, I do. And I looked at the corner. I didn't know what he saw, but I was going to go along with it. If he said it, it was so, it was so. He goes, you do? I go, yeah, I do. Yeah, I just, I don't have my glasses, so what, can you explain? He goes, the men in the black with the top hats, do you see them all? This is something the Irish do. They see the pallbearers in corners of the room. I swear to God. And I said, yes, I see them, Dad. I see them. He goes, now listen to me. You're going to help me get out of this. I built this east wing. I know where the exits are. Don't tell anybody. Get me in the wheelchair, and we'll get the hell out of here. You can't tell anybody. And I was like, okay, Dad. And I walked out of the room, and I was like, I can't tell anybody. I have to tell somebody. And I told my older sister, who was a nurse, and she said, that's the medication. It's okay. And I told my mom, he built this? And my mom said, he did, actually. He worked on a job for the Montreal General. He does know where the exit is. <laughs> so it gets worse. And finally, the doctor comes to us and says, listen, we did our best. His kidneys are failing. And we really recommend, there's a beautiful new ward in the Montreal General. This was 20 years ago. It's the palliative care ward. And my mom starts crying. No, no, no. 
And I'm, I don't know anything about what palliative is. It sounds really peaceful to me. I go, that sounds good. Because there were all these students coming into the rooms and checking on my dad, waking him up all the time. And they said, it'll be very peaceful for him, but he might not last longer than two weeks. And my mom just, she can't bear this. And uh, he goes, I think it might be a good idea if you, if you talk to your dad. So by this time, my three older sisters had arrived from overseas. They're all here. And uh, I look at mom and I go, so, so we should do this, right, mom? And mom goes, well, I can't tell him. You have to tell him, sweetheart. I can't. It'll be too much for me. This is your thing. You like telling the truth. You could do it now. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, all right. So I get it all ready in my head. I'm going to tell dad. And I, I, I'm going to tell him the truth. I wanted to tell him the truth for uh, several months now. And we go into the hospital room and we are circled around the bed. And my mom, she can't bear it. She's flitting around the room, arranging flowers, humming a song. She cannot handle this. And I am bracing myself that I am going to tell my dad the truth. And uh, there's a lot I want to say. Like, I'm really mad. I'm mad that I've had to lie for, it was seven months, by the way. He, he, it's seven months at this point. He made it past three. I have to lie and say, you know what? This was really hard for me to act in front of you as if life was grand when it certainly wasn't. And by the way, this, this could have all been different if you hadn't raised us to tell lies and create cockamamie plans. But anyway, I, I, I didn't think I'd start there. And I held his hand, and it was very cold, very tiny, and he was lying there in the bed. And the minute I touched his hand, his eyes opened. And my dad had the most beautiful, blue, piercing eyes. And even though he was only about 90 pounds, just so frail and, and, and tiny, he looked at me, and he looked at my three older sisters, and he said, sweetheart, there's something I have to tell you. And I was like, okay. And I looked at my sisters and we're like, what is he going to say? And we said, yes, dad, what is it? And he goes, I think I'm dying. And I was like, really? You think? You think you're dying? I mean, this was so comical, which was so typical of my family life, that if you could go from point A to point B, no, why do something direct if you could go zigzag all around? Make it interesting. But of course, I was like, okay, this is unexpected. I have to keep the act up for mom one last time. So I look at him and I go, no, dad. No. And he goes, yes. But I don't think your mother knows. <laughs> and my mom's rearranging flowers. La, 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 whoop-dee-doo, da, in the back. And he looks at me, he goes, now, Colette, you have to promise me. You'll tell her. But tell her gently. Do you promise me? And I told my dad the truth. I said, I promise, Dad. Thank you. That was Colette Mix. 
Colette Mix is an actor, storyteller, and corporate trainer. She studied theater in Paris at École Jacques Lecoq and performed in theater, film, and television, such as on Naturally Sadie, The Kennedys, and Murdoch Mysteries. Colette teaches a storytelling course at the Second City Training Center in Toronto and continues to tell true stories live on stage for several storytelling shows in Toronto. The Story Collider is so grateful to Gabe and Colette for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to The Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, education director Lily B., science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, and our operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Gastor Almonte and Zach Stovall, and by Sarah Mazrui and me, Misha Gajewski, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, Gastor Almonte will be back with stories about what could have been. You won't want to miss those hilarious stories. Until then, thanks so much for listening. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.